Welcome to the Theory of Anything podcast. Uh, we have a special guest here today, Julian Barber, who um, his books, The Janus Point and The End of Time. I, I have not read them, but Sadia keeps telling me about them, and they were a very big part of my interview with Sadia. And so we decided we wanted to actually talk with Julian Barber about some of his theories. And he has some really very exciting ideas that I had never heard of before. So I actually am very excited to have a chance to uh, talk with him and to ask him questions directly. So uh, we also have with us um, Sadia and Cameo here today. So, hey, everybody, say hello. 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 Hi, Bruce. Hello, that's me. (laughs) Welcome, Julian. Uh, yes, nice welcome. Yeah, welcome, and thank you very much for your time. So, Sadia, I'm going to turn most of this over to you because honestly, you're just smarter than me when it comes to physics. So, uh... <laughs> I just know uh, more physics. That's all. I don't know about smarter, but <laughs> uh, all right, Julian. So, this is really exciting for me because uh, you know your ideas have been a big inspiration for me when I was interested in quantum gravity when I was introduced to general relativity in my student days. Just the whole idea of background independence kind of intrigued me. And I feel like you, your approach, it really took me, I think it made me appreciate physics at a deeper level, to be honest with you, than I had ever gotten from any other books, I'll be honest with you. And up till this day, I feel like, you know, you make classical physics, general relativity, approaching them fun because of the way, like the type of questions that you've asked and how you address them. So I wanted to start by asking you about just an intuition that most physicists seem to have about that there should be some sort of, an, I'm not saying every physicist believes in that, but uh, most physicists seem to think that there is some sort of an underlying unity in the universe. And it seems to me that your work, I feel like, has taken that more seriously than I ever saw anybody uh, uh, take could you maybe and um, comment on that? And particularly, I'm kind of referring to your Machian approach um, to physics. Uh, what does it mean that there is an underlying unity in the universe? And would you also, as you go through it, maybe tell us a little bit about how that that comes about in your theory? Maybe even talk about, I, I guess I'll let you start and then we could ask questions maybe as we go along. Yes, well, certainly Mach has been a, a great... Uh, influence for me. And basically, he was reacting very strongly, as had Leibniz before him, to Newton's ideas of absolute space and time. So Newton imagined space as, the way I like to describe it, as, as as a block of translucent ice in which you could draw lines, uh, and then you could imagine that um, some object moves along these straight lines uh, because they're they're there in the block of ice. Um, And equally, uh, he imagined that time flows uniformly. uh, And in that case, then, you, you, you can say that the the object is moving in a straight line at a uniform speed. But the problem that Mach pointed out is that you can't see space, it's invisible. Uh, and uh, what about time? If, if, if Newton says it flows uniformly without reference to anything else that's happening, um, well, how do you see time? I mean, we don't see time. What we see is objects and we see uh, 
how they change. We see things change. So um, Mach has two sayings, which I always repeat, um, slightly shortened perhaps. One, one which is, uh, is, is often quoted, which is, it is utterly impossible to measure the changes of things by time. Quite the contrary, time is an abstraction at which we arrive by means of the changes of things. And the other one is, he, he says, the, the universe is given once only with its relative motions alone determinable. So that's my starting point. And I think um, that's not far away from what Leibniz said in a famous uh, disagreement with Newton's ideas um, quite a lot earlier. And I think that's very intuitive. So then the question is, how do you turn that into a theory? And that's really what I've spent something, well, over 60 years. It, it's, it's 59 years since I started thinking about these things. I've worked with very good collaborators. And the idea of the unity of the universe, I think, can I always start with just three particles, because then you can really do something of in, interest. That now. What I do assume is that I assume geometry or geometrical relationships. Uh, Galileo said he that attempts natural philosophy without geometry is lost. Uh, and I think, I think that's very true. So to give you an idea of how I think about the unity of the universe, just imagine that there are three particles in it. Uh, they, they will, at any instant, they will form a triangle. So that's a unity uh, that in many ways a triangle is, is, the, is the geometrical figure with which we're very familiar. We can all imagine a triangle. Now, if, if those three particles are the entire universe, that triangle is, is, is everything. So what can we say about it? We can't say that it has any size because there's no ruler outside that triangle to say how big it is. But what we can say is, what is the shape of the triangle? Now, the shape of the triangle is determined by the ratios of the sides. So a triangle has three sides, so you can form the ratio of those three sides. Uh, and those determine the internal angles of the triangle, which determine the shape of the triangle. I'm assuming that it's in, in uh, Euclidean space. Uh, and there you have a deep unity. You, you, you just can't get away from that. So uh, to how, uh, how far does that answer your question? Well, let me just say that if I only had one particle, there's nothing much you can do with that because you can't form any ratios. So for me, it's very important that you can always form ratios of things of the same kind. So distances, the three sides of the triangle are all things of the same size. So you, you form ratios of them. And uh, if you had just one particle, you can't do anything with that. If you have two particles, well, you could say there's a distance between them, but you can't take a ratio of, of, of one thing. You'd always just get one. You would divide the distance by itself and you'd always have one. So nothing could change. So the great thing about three is that things can change. So uh, how, how do you react to that, Sadia? No, I think that is beautiful. This kind of highlights that relational uh, view that you hold and that, that you've really taken seriously. 
Uh, one of the things that I kind of, I was wondering- Can I ask a clarifying question um, quickly? Sorry, so you had, just, you had just mentioned that um, there, there's no sizes with, with three particles. Um, there kind of is in that they could have different sizes relative to each other. So what you're really saying, I think, is there's no absolute size but rather you can only realize like if you had a triangle that was each side was 10, there'd be no difference between a triangle with each side 10, each side 100. What would matter is that they all have the same ratio between themselves. Yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the ratios that count. And I'm, I'm envisaging an ide idealized situation where the particles are really points. They don't have any size. They are just literally points. One of the really main ideas that we have in shape dynamics is that there is no ruler outside the universe that that's I mean tell that to the marines that there's something out there that we can measure the size of the universe by so all you can say suppose the universe did just consist of three points that are always at the vertices of a triangle all one can objectively say about it is that one side of the triangle is shorter than a different side and you could say meaningfully by how much it might be exactly one half the length and, and things like that so basically you've got three sides of a triangle but there's only two ratios those are pure numbers and shape dynamics is just insisting that everything we say about the whole universe should be expressed in terms of ratios like that Interesting. Okay, thank you. And you also um, started to mention that there's an assumption here that the points are infinitesimally, uh, infinitely small. Is that also a part of the assumption when we're talking about uh, there's no absolute sizes? That's really as a model. Um, when Newton created dynamics, he talked about bodies. And then Within a few decades, mathematicians like Euler and others had idealized that to, to, to talk about point-sized bodies and, and point particles. And the mathematics is perfectly okay. Now, there's a, still a lot of uncertainty really in the physics community to this day about to what extent you can talk about point particles or whether you should talk about fields, which is just a, a distribution of intensity. Uh, so I wouldn't say that uh, the point particle, that the, that the particles are exactly points is truly significant. The, the really much more important thing is, is the ratios that it's, we're talking about pure numbers. Okay, thank you. That answers my question. Sorry, go ahead, Salia, with whatever your previous question was. Well, I had a previous question, but since there is another thing related to that, I'll just ask now that um, those, uh, so those, uh, the, the point particles or whatever the, the, the stuff there is, uh, how does, um, uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong in this, that um, aren't masses assumed to be like, aren't, aren't we assuming that there are actually masses, is masses an assumed concept, uh, even though I understand that at the end, the ratios are left behind. Uh, does it matter if you have masses that are unequal versus all equal masses? Even oh, if yes, sure. Uh, certainly you can assume 
that these point particles have masses. And as, uh, as long as you recognize that all that will count is the ratios of the masses. Uh, and in Newtonian theory, you assume that the masses remain constant. So uh, basically, if you have uh, 10, 10 particles, you can, you can, you can uh, give them masses, but then you take the ratios of those masses. So you really only have nine independent ratios and they are all pure numbers. So the one definite guiding principle of shape dynamics is to express everything in pure numbers. And it's so, it's very convenient and easy to construct a model with point particles, which is why at this stage we're doing that. And that already opens up all sorts of interesting possibilities, which to my surprise don't really seem to have been seriously considered in theoretical physics or cosmology up to now. Um, and uh, when you, um, so you're also assuming a sort of like a shape dynamic form of the Newtonian potential, right? In there. Um, uh, Yes, that, that's quite right. So the, the, uh, the Newton gravitational potential the, the, that exists between two particles, so that you have particles that have mass one and mass two, uh, and so you multiply those masses and you divide by the distance between them. So that's got uh, things that are not ratios, the, the, the masses are not ratios, uh, and the and the distance is not a ratio, but then you add to if you have a, a, a large number of particles, the the total potential for the whole complete set is is all those products of the masses divided by the separations between the respective particles, and you add that all up, and that is the Newton gravitational potential. So what we then do is multiplied by a quantity which is called the, the center of mass moment of inertia, or rather its square root, which is equal to what is called the root mean square length. So this is, this is a quantity which has the dimension, it's a length. So if you multiply something which is one over a length, the Newton potential is one over a length. So if you multiply the whole thing by something which is, which is a length, then you take out the length. So that's got you rid of the dimensions in, in the length. And then you do the same with the masses. You uh, divide by uh, the uh, something that's got an appropriate power of the masses. So the, the moment of inertia has a, has a mass in it. Uh, so you have to divide by an appropriate power of the masses. And then you get something which is called the shape potential. And that's been used by people who study Newtonian gravity for a long time, um, but we're promoting it to much more significance than, than they have. But it's, it's a well-established concept. So, so that's how we introduce the Newtonian gravitational force in, in that manner, again, as a pure number. I guess the thing that intrigues me is that how big of a part the ontology where uh, you know, like, okay, there are masses, for example, that because we know that there are masses and they're correlated with each other um, using, uh, you know, through the Newtonian potential, uh, but which I understand how the, in you know, how, you know, eventually in shape dynamics, there are pure ratios. But I was thinking that what if instead of masses, it was something else? 
you know, which would also impact, say, the type of potential. So I guess in that sense, uh, what I'm wondering is that it, to me, it feels like there it, it, there seems to be some sort of something prior to just shapes. Please, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, that is that something that, uh, you know, uh, I mean, don't you feel like maybe there is something prior uh, simply because, like I said, here, obviously, we, we are talking about masses and their correlations are in terms of the Newtonian potential. But what if that was not the ontology? What if we wanted to take shape dynamics to a different uh, theory? Um, I mean, I guess electromagnetism wouldn't be that different if we have electric charges. But but what if there was some other basic elements um, with their associated potential? Well, <laughs> I think there are, this, this is something which has got to be developed, but basically uh, over the history of physics, two, two sort of precise notions have developed. One is, is the one of point particles. Uh, and as I say, that was made firm in, in the 18th century, really, a few decades after Newton had made his discoveries. And then bit by bit, the field notion, the notion of a, of a field developed in, in optics, light was explained as a wave phenomenon. Uh, and then uh, Faraday had the idea of fields of force and, and lines of force in, in, in electric and magnetic fields. And then Maxwell put that together into his wonderful equations of electrodynamics, huge triumph of theoretical physics. Um, and then a few decades later, Einstein did something even more remarkable, which was create his, his um, field equations in general relativity. And in all those cases, fields had replaced point particles. But basically, you're dealing with the same sort of thing. See, it, instead of having uh, point particles with masses or mass ratios, you have field intensities and you have directions of, of the fields that, that they, the Faraday lines of force run in a, a particular direction. Everybody knows the, the famous experiment where you um, sprinkle iron filings over a magnet and you see the lines of force. So you can do shape dynamics with, with those sort of concepts. And in the 20th century, you've had this huge success where um, physicists have gone beyond Maxwell's theory of the electromagnetic field, and they've made huge progress with understanding the other interactions, the above all, the, the strong and the weak interaction, which is added on to the electromagnetic interaction. And they've shown how to unify them in, in a, it's not a perfect unification, but it's, it's very impressive how they've managed to unify the forces. Now, in principle, all of those uh, forces are represented by analogs of the Newton potential, but they're expressed in terms of fields and not point particles. But in principle, I think it is possible uh, we're a long way from developing shape dynamics to do that, but the possibility is definitely there. And one of the key concepts that we have in, in shape dynamics, which is what we call the shape potential, but it's also the complexity. Uh, I mean, we give it two different names. Um, there is an analog of that in, in Einstein's theory. It's related to three-dimensional geometry. Uh, so, 
there's a lot of work to do, but I think the possibility of doing it is 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 definitely there. I guess what I'm wondering is that in taking the form of the potential in the theory, aren't we admitting something maybe a little bit more than just pure relations? I guess that's what I'm kind of thinking about that that uh, even though I understand that we have pure ratios, but there is a form of the potential. It is one way rather than some other way. And in in the form of the potential, is it possible that, you know, we have admitted something which goes maybe beyond relationalism, even though the potential is purely relational? I don't know if I'm clarifying my question uh, in a good way. I, I guess uh, it comes down to really what I really wanted to ask you was that, would you consider yourself a relational purist? Or do you think that there might be something more to the world? Do you think that when we're talking about masses versus charges, could there be something intrinsic that you think that relationalism might miss out? Uh, that in some shape or form we are admitting, but, but we're just looking at it in like at the level of just relations? Well, I, I certainly have a, a lot of confidence in relations and, and ratios. Uh, what is really the whole story of the universe is, of course, a, another matter. And quite why the Newton potential has the form it does is, is a big issue. I certainly think that the real, if, if something is really made all the progress in, in physics, in understanding the world, that has happened. It's all developed out of the application of geometry. Uh, it, geometry is not, the Euclidean geometry and the facts of Euclidean geometry are not far removed from our everyday experience. And Galileo has this wonderful saying, which I always quote, he that attempts natural philosophy without geometry is lost. And there are certain very basic facts in geometry about right angles, the shapes of triangles you get then from them, you get trigonometry. Uh, you can also get spherical trigonometry about how angles and, and distances on the sky are related to each other, which incidentally was developed uh, before plane trigonometry was uh, because of uh, applications in astronomy. That, that happened about 100, 150 years before the common era. So um, that's, that's, I think, all that um, physicists, theoretical physicists at the moment have been able to, to work with, really. Um, and in fact, really, geometry has come to dominate physics more and more as, as time passes. Um, so that's my justification for it. As, as regards the particular form of the Newton potential, it's very, very interesting structure that it has, uh, particularly when you put it as, as the shape potential, when you, when you make it dimensionless, because uh, there, are, there are two, once you've got the idea of a set of points and they needn't have masses, you could say they all have the same mass, um, there is one number which is called the mean root mean square length. So you you take uh, you take all the separations between the particles, you square them, you add them all up, and then you take the square root of that. That is called the root mean square length, and it's the most obvious thing you would want if you want sort of some average of the 
diameter of, of sort of a, a lot of points in space. If if the points in space were were bees and you had a swarm of bees, it's basically the diameter of that swarm of bees. And then there's another length that you can define, which is which is actually just the Newton potential or rather the inverse of the Newton potential. So that's called the mean harmonic length. So if if you had a mathematician who knew all about Euclidean geometry and uh, nothing about gravity at all, but was asked to come up with a mathematical expression which characterizes how much a collection of points is clustered or is uniformly distributed, the most obvious thing it would come up with would be that ratio of the root mean square length divided by the mean harmonic length. And lo and behold, what is it? It's the Newton potential made scale invariant. Mm. And I think that's very striking indeed. Interesting. And, and I guess you also connected it to this concept of complexity that you talk about, right? The... Well, that's right, because it is, it is exactly the same. Uh, it is the quantity that we call the complexity. And that behaves in a very interesting way when you actually look at actual Newtonian solutions, how, they, how these point particles interact with each other. This, this, it's, it's first of all what is really governing the behavior of those particles. Uh, if you consider them as a model universe, if you have n, uh, a finite number of particles and you say that's my model universe, it is actually that quantity which governs their behavior. And it is also, it's also the size of that universe because how do you measure the size of something? You take a, you take a measuring rod uh, and you, you, which is say, uh, six inches long and you and you you measure the your, your any object you've got the, the width of your table by seeing how many times that ruler goes across it so given those if you have those particles just the particles and nothing else is there some way in which you could say how big it is well you could imagine that the if there were two particles close to each other relatively close to each other you could you could say well they define that that separation of those two particles defines a ruler i'm going to say that is my ruler and then you can say well how big is 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 the whole universe well a more sensible way to do that would be to take the average of the short separations and the average of the large separations and, la and divide the average of the large separations by the average of small separations. And you would say that's the intrinsic size of the universe. And that, lo and behold, again, is the Newton potential made scale invariant. It's what we call the complexity. It's really quite remarkable how much just comes out of that one mathematical expression. Yeah, that is fascinating. And it's also interesting to me that um, that um, that you and your collaborators have mentioned that how um, when we look at um, general relativity in its standard formulation, that there seems to be, could you maybe tell us a little bit about how the scale and size is treated in uh, the, the standard um, or the ADM formulation of general relativity versus shape dynamics? Uh, is there some sort of a sense in which the... Um, because you guys have pointed out that there is, um, the, the scale seems to be a little bit more absolute in a sense in, in the standard formulation of general relativity or? 
Well, the scale is in the standard formulation of general relativity, scale is put in in a, in a rather unsatisfactory way, I have to say. I mean, I have a, a one of my collaborators, uh, he says, uh, he, and he's a cosmologist, and he says that the, the first lecture, when students go to their first lecture on cosmology, they're told that um, size of the universe is, is, a, 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 is a nominal quantity at the given instant. So they're told that what you say is that the size or the volume of the universe now, if it's, if it's closed up on itself as opposed to an infinite universe, but uh, I much prefer to imagine that the universe is, is in some senses a, a true unity and, and, and closes up on itself in three dimensions like the surface of the earth does in two. And that's a, that's a big, that may be wrong. Uh, uh, and, and, and that's got to be admitted. But if that's okay, then under those circumstances, what budding cosmologists are taught is that you say, the size of the universe now is one, and that's a nominal choice. And then the size of the universe at any other time is some fraction of that. It may be larger or smaller. Uh, and then my collaborator says, and thereafter, the professional astronomers seem to completely forget about that and carry on as if size is absolute. And you can see countless examples of that if you read the literature. And in a way, so they, they know, they know, so to speak, in their brains that uh, there is no ruler outside the universe, but in their gut, they still continue to believe in it. And the same really goes for time. And this is very interesting because Einstein, towards the end of his life, about seven years before he died, he wrote some autobiographical notes. And he said that he had actually committed a sin when he created general relativity because he said it, the theory introduces two completely unrelated concepts. One is the concept of the space-time metric, uh, which tells you uh, how far apart in space things are, two points are, or how far apart in time they are. And then he said the theory brings in something completely unrelated without any, without coming, bringing it out of the theory, which are rods and clocks. And these rods and clocks measure spatial separation and, and time separations. And he said that is, and he calls, he says that literally is a sin. And he says that uh, a decent theory should develop a theory of rods and clocks from within the fundamental equations of the theory. And he admits that he wasn't able to do that. And he said it was a sort of, he admitted that it was a makeshift. And, and he said that it, this, this sin should be rectified at some stage. And I just think it hasn't been properly done. And I think it's sitting right at the heart of relativity theory and cosmology to this day. When you really look at how general relativity works, now this was, uh, as a dynamical theory, this was shown in the 1950s. This was developed by Arnovit, Deiser, and Misner. That's called the ADM Hamiltonian formalism, Hamiltonian dynamics. And simultaneously, it was done by Dirac in, in the 1950s. Um, and Dirac was actually so surprised at what he'd found, he said, uh, 
This result inclines me to believe that four-dimensional symmetry is not a fundamental property of the physical world. And that's actually what brought me, started me thinking about, well, what's time then? Um, so, and then later on, uh, a method was developed. There's this very complicated issues in general relativity, how you can actually use it. Um, and well, perhaps let's stop at that stage because we might come back to that because you may want to come back and, and answer some question me about what I've just said. Yeah, actually, I was wondering that how far do you think shape dynamics has gotten to addressing that question? And, and by the way, this is one of the reasons that I've thoroughly enjoyed um, following your work. It's really made me appreciate uh, physics at a deeper level. And, and the, the sort of questions like what you were saying about cosmology, it's one of those things you do come across and you do wonder what all that means. And then somehow, because you're just bombarded with so much, you're learning so much that you just tend to overlook, but you actually didn't let go of it and actually uh, kept asking those questions. So how far would you say that shape dynamics has gone? How, um, like, how, what do you feel at this point in time, how uh, successfully has shape dynamics um, addressed that question uh, that Einstein left and took the operational route? Um, I, think, uh, I think we've gone quite far, but not yet within Einstein's theory, we have shown really how the theory comes, uh, what Einstein was calling for actually does come out of Newton's theory very beautifully. And now, first of all, uh, Newtonian, uh, when you take relational ideas seriously, which go back to Leibniz's criticism of Newton's concept of absolute space and time and to Ernst Mach's uh, very forceful criticisms in the 19th century um, and try and just say that, so Mach said, you really got to think about how the whole universe works. And he, he suggested that the inertial motion, which is so important in Newtonian theory, and it was to formulate the idea of inertial motion that a body moves if it's not affected by the forces that it either stays at rest or it moves uniformly in a straight line at a uniform speed. That was why he introduced the notions of absolute space and absolute time to give some mathematical meaning to that statement. And Mach said, there's something manifestly wrong with this because you can't see, you can't see absolute space and absolute time. And he conjectured uh, and this is what Einstein then called Mach's principle, that somehow the universe in its totality, all the masses in the universe, somehow or other through an as yet unrecognized mechanism cause is, is what is actually guiding the particles in their inertial motion. That inertial motion is, is the local manifestation of the interconnection of the whole universe. Um, and that's... I think I can say that is the contribution uh, that my Italian collaborator, Bruno Bertotti, and myself, uh, I think one can say we definitiv definitively showed that that makes sense. And if you have a universe of point particles, we showed how you can explicitly implement that idea of Marx. And in fact, when you then look at the formalism of general relativity, the dynamical structure of general relativity that Arnovit, Deser, and Misner uh, 
found in Dirac at the, more or less at the same time, you see that, uh, and, and if the universe is spatially closed up on itself, then you see that Newton's, that, that uh, the way Bertotti and I showed it for in, in, with point particles, this, basically the same structure is realized within general relativity. So uh, in, if, if the universe is, is closed up on itself, and so I think I'm encouraged by that. And so this is this is shape dynamics. Now it's the really important mathematics that goes behind this was first of all the work of Dirac and, and ADM, and then it was followed up another 10, 12 years later by Jimmy York in, in North Carolina and uh, Nilo Muruku, the Irish collaborator with whom I worked for 10 years, for 10 years, um, they did some very important mathematics, uh, which is called solving the initial value problem, which literally lays out the, the mathematics and proves that it works in a very impressive way um, it, in, in much more sophisticated way than Bertotti and I did in, in 1982. But the, the overall reason why it works is essentially the same. It's an implementation of Mach's principle in that case there. So, See, kind of, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, no, you, I just wanted to say that encourages me. Uh -huh. No, you kind of answered actually one of the questions I wanted to ask at the beginning about that Machian unity uh, that, you know, how in standard physics, you, you kind of take the inertial frames of reference for granted and you never really get an answer of, okay, how does how do the inertial frames of frames of reference come about, or even the question of what what it, what equilocality means, for example, or um, if a bucket is rotating, how do we know that it's you know how do we meaningfully say that the the if there's water in the bucket that you know uh, clearly we see that there is even acceleration in some absolute sense, but why can't we according to relativity say that the universe around it is just rotating around it? Um, maybe I'm putting too many things here, but I guess what I really wanted to ask was, so it, it seems to me that there seems to be some sort of almost like a non-local type connection. I mean, I know non-locality is a loaded word and different people mean different. Sometimes it's used, talked about in different ways, but it seems to me like there is some sort of almost like an instantaneous type of a connection uh, that determines or uh, locality or whereby locality seems to be more of an emergent thing uh, than anything. Would I be wrong in saying that or? No, but um, let me start off by saying that geometrical relationships are non-local. Um, just, just imagine, just suppose, uh, I mean, this is, this is just a fact about Euclidean geometry. So you have, um, so first of all, there are things, there are measuring rods, and I call these gifts of nature. I mean, uh, you wouldn't find them anywhere near the Big Bang in time, but um, shall we say surveyors in Egypt three, four thousand years ago could take bamboo canes uh, and they could survey fields, which they almost certainly did. And with these bamboo canes, they might have uh, discovered Pythagoras' theorem. It's entirely possible. And the great thing about measuring rods is that they, they, uh, 
they don't misbehave unless something is done to them. So you could start off putting two bamboo canes next to each other in, in Alexandria, uh, and then you could take one of them to Luxor and bring it back again and lay it next to the one that had stayed all its time in Alexandria, and you'd find that they were the same length. And if, it, if they weren't still the same length, then it's never too difficult to find out what's gone wrong. Somebody came along and cut a bit off one of them, um, you know, or, or one of them's got a bit hotter, so it's expanded a little bit. Um, so this is this wonderful thing about measuring rods. Now with measuring rods, um, you can measure distances between a, a, a finite number of points. So if there are, there's a formula, it's very easy. So if you're in three dimensions and you've got n points, so you take n, then you multiply it by n minus one, and you divide by two. And that's the number of distances there are between those n points. Um, and if there's only three points, uh, those separations, those distances that you found uh, must satisfy the triangle inequality, but they don't satisfy an algebraic equation. But if you have five or more such points, these, are, these can be as far apart as you like, they satisfy algebraic relations, they satisfy equations, certain expressions uh have to be equal to zero and zero is a very special number there's there's that's telling you something very profound about interconnections in the world and in euclidean geometry these connections these relationships can be as just as big as you like so to speak they 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 can uh, I mean, the overall size is meaningless, but they can hold between any number of particles. You can, you can have these relationships holding between a thousand particles. And that is, I would say this is a incredibly tightly knitted. So, so geometry is what holds the world together. Um, I like to quote uh, from the opening scene of Goethe's Faust, where, well, well one of the early scenes, where Faust is in despair about the universe and the world and, and, and what it is. And he says, well, I'll, I'll quote the German, was, he asks, was im innersten die Welt zusammenhält? And my translation into English is, what is it in its innermost core holds the world together? And my answer, inspired by Galileo, is geometry. It's incredibly non-local. So, so if, if those points, if the, if the distances between the points change, as they change, those relations have got to stay valid. And that's happening non-locally. There's, there's nothing local about that. So this is why I think you don't have to be alarmed at all about Marx suggesting that distant parts of the universe are having an effect here because geometry is already like that uh, and it's it's the it's the law the question that really counts is what is the law that operates when the distances change and that's there is a natural way to there's a rather natural way to say what that law is 
And in the case of point particles, that's the one that Bertotti and I found, and it's a restriction. So you still get Newtonian motions, but they're restricted. They say that a very fundamental quantity called the angular momentum of, of that system of particles treated as the whole universe must be exactly zero. And somewhat related, but this is to do with time, it's very, it's very, I won't say it's quite so definite as the vanishing of the angular momentum, but you can also argue that the total energy of the system must be exactly zero. And I, I don't think there's, once you've got used to it and you've accepted the fact that geometry is this incredibly tight knitting together of the whole universe at a given instant, that the this Machian fact about how the universe changes its shape should hold. I don't think that's at all surprising. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Um, and, and then I guess I kind of wanted to, so that would require that the universe is finite, right? Um, uh, or um, uh, would that also require, I, I guess the universe have to be closed as well or? Um, yes, but, uh, uh, yes it, it, would, it would certainly, uh, I mean, there is perhaps some possibility that this some sort of approximation to Mach's ideas might work in an infinite universe, but um, I think it's much more attractive to have one that is uh, is 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 a true unity. Now that. That doesn't mean, so the particle model is not completely satisfactory because you always have to have a finite number of particles. You can make it bigger and bigger and bigger, but you're still gonna hit up against the end and say, well, I can't let the number of particles become infinite. But if you go to the field ontology where you're talking about fields, well, then you can have an infinite amount of variety. So as you look out at the, as astronomers look back to as far as they possibly can in the universe uh, to whatever it is, 300,000 years after the Big Bang, they see what is called the, the microwave background. I'm sure you've seen that, that it's all over the place, this image of the microwave background looking like a, a rugger ball uh, or an oval uh, with, with spots on it. Um, uh, and, and those are the fluctuations of the temperature. They're, they're, they're one part in, in 100,000, tiny fluctuations in the temperature, but there are variations. Now, mathematics is, is, so to speak, infinitely deep. Those fluctuations could actually, uh, so they, 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 they spread over a relatively small fraction, so that their temperature variations of one part in 100,000 and they have a diameter. I'm not quite sure what the diameter is, but you've seen that thing. It, 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 it looks yeah. like a, a speckled uh, rugger ball um, or an egg. <laughs> it might, you might even call, make it so it looks like one of these beautiful Easter eggs that they, they paint in, in, in Eastern Europe. Um, and there's no reason why those that detail should not be infinitely deep because you can go to you can go to infinity in the uh, sort of infinitely deep uh, and you could sort of uh, sort of use a microscope to look ever closer and you would find that the structure goes on forever it's mathematically perfectly possible so in that sense when you go to the field ontology you could literally have an infinite universe even 
and it would be a true unity because it, it would close up on itself. So in other words, uh, we're thinking uh, one way to think of the fields would be you could, you know, uh, to think that there is some sort of almost like there's no bottom layer that you could keep going deeper and deeper, but you're always going to find relations um, that, uh, you know, you're always going to find relational aspects uh, where everything is just kind of related at different levels. Is that yes. what you're saying? Yes, but yes, but it, if it, it is that deep... Um, Yes, it's yeah, perfectly possible. If if you have if you have waves, uh, I mean, if you have a loop of string, this is like string theory. If you have a a loop of string uh, or a, an elastic thing, you, you have waves of different wavelengths. They have nodes where where the where the uh, fluctuation is zero, uh, like a violin string, um, and. There's a longest wave. There's a there's one the lowest frequency and the longest wavelength, um, and then you 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 just go all the way up to infinity. And in in quantum field theory, that's called uh, then you're re getting into the ultraviolet. Uh, so when you go to the infrared, you come to an end. But when you go to the ultraviolet, you don't. You can go on dividing forever, um, and. Uh, so, I mean, that's just the same. You can imagine standing in the middle of a circle and uh, and seeing uh, dots around the circle equally dis distributed. Um, first of all, there might be just one dot in one place. Then there would be another dot exactly opposite. Then there would be four dots or three dots equally spaced with 120 degrees between them. And you could just go on filling dots forever and ever and ever. It'll never but stop. I guess, but I guess from our point of view, we will always then see um, uh, the dynamics to be like the universe, uh, the dynamic, um, the universe to be approximately closed, dynamically closed, because there is always more to it. Is that would that be the right way of thinking about it? That from our uh, point of view, uh, you know, we, we, we will see it as kind of approximately dynamically closed because there's always more. To the universe. I don't know if I'm well. Thinking. Well, we we would we we wouldn't we wouldn't see if it really is goes down forever. I mean, uh, you know that the structure you, the, the the structure never comes to an end. We, we we would never. There would be a limit to what we could we we could see, um, and I mean that that that's just a, a technical practicality. But in principle, it, it, it could go on down forever. All right. And, and I guess a related question that I had was um, I was listening to David Sloan's uh, talk on that shape dyna then dynamic workshop. I kind of looked at his paper, too, uh, where he um, he basically did a scale free, I guess, reformulation of um, the, the current theory of cosmology. Uh, we're uh, starting from a scale-free um, action. Uh, and there there was some sort of uh, a friction-like term that that he uh, talks about that that we're seeing here that where if you give up on the scale, if the scale is intrinsic, then you end up getting this friction-like term um, in the cosmology model. So would that be kind of suggest suggestive of this type of openness to the universe? Yes, I guess so. Yes, no. I mean, uh, David's mathematics is is uh, is is very interesting. It's one way of looking at things. So, um, 
And in fact, actually, there's another way which also introduces a friction type thing, which already came in. in uh, that was actually before uh, my tour. So my uh, back in 2015, um, uh, I, Tim Koslowski and Flavia McCarty uh, had this paper in Physical Review Letters, Identification of the Gravitational Arrow of Time. Um, and in that, we said that you could look at the way Newtonian theory behaves as, as if there was a, a friction term. So basically, the, uh, the great form of dynamics which uh, evolved in the, uh, in the 19th century was by this great Irish mathematician Hamilton, and that's called Hamiltonian dynamics. In the late 18th century, a beautiful form was, was developed by the mathematician Lagrange, and that's called Lagrangian dynamics. Um, and they, they both derive really from Newtonian dynamics, but they're very elegant ways, and very particularly the one that Hamilton devised, uh, came up with, is, is incredibly powerful and very beautiful. And there's no friction in that. So that will describe... Um, uh, a pendulum with small oscillations. Well, it will describe a lot uh, with large oscillations and things like that. So, but you can have also friction terms in the dynamics, but then the dynamics is not Hamiltonian. But the interesting thing is if you, if you take the scale out of Newtonian theory and there are various ways of doing it, and David has, has got one particularly elegant way of doing it, or starting without it even rather, um, but uh, it was my collaborators who did the mathematics in, in our paper in 2015, you can take the scale out of, New out of Newtonian theory in its Hamiltonian form. And when you do that, you, you, you get a modified form of dynamics, which, which seems to have friction in it, but it's friction of a rather interesting form because Normally, friction will bring motion to a stop. Um, uh, I mean, if you roll yeah. a ball on a sticky table, it will come to an end, the motion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it, uh, it, this type of friction doesn't. It, 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 things go on forever, but they, they, it looks as if they're subject to friction. All right. In other words, like an open system, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be where it's just losing energy or... Um, but it's suggestive of more of an open system, right? Well, once you take out energy has energy has uh, is a dimension for quantity. So when you take it out, it's 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 not really such an appropriate concept. Uh, you 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 see you if if you have a Newtonian system for which the energy is non is zero, then oh, no. Yeah. The shapes change in a certain way. If the energy is, is non-zero, then the shapes change in a different way. There's a different law that governs the way the shapes change. So you're, you're saying that's better to think in terms of, because like you said, that we were saying that the energy of the full, if we apply it to the whole universe is zero. So we're, we have to think more in terms of how it affects the changing, the shape changing, right? Yes. Well, the, the, the thing about, the thing about, just only looking at the shapes is that it removes all the redundant part of your description. If you, if you have the ordinary Newtonian description in essentially, well, 
nowadays students are taught to, it's in an inertial frame of reference, but you start off, for example, with, uh, uh, you say, uh, you say where the center of the mass of the system is, that's, an, that's, that's three arbitrary numbers where, where you imagine that the center of mass is somewhere in space. Then you, you say, uh, what is the direct, if it's got angular momentum, you say, what is the direction of that angular momentum in that space? So that's another three things. So that's another two, that's a direction. Then you say what the magnitude of that is. So you bring in a lot of things which are, are nominal at the start. So there's a lot of redundancy in the normal description. So if you then, but if you then use Newton's equations to find out, to get a solution, uh, then you can throw away all of the information about where the center of mass is, what the orientation of your angular momentum is, and, and what the overall size is, and just look at the succession of shapes. And in doing that, you've done two things, which I think are very important and should tell you that's the way to think about the universe as a whole. First of all, you've thrown away every single bit of information which is redundant that you, you can get rid of, but you haven't thrown away one single bit of it, which is essential. So if, I, if you give me a Newtonian solution in the conventional way, I then just take out of it the successive shapes, and then I give those successive shapes to a different mathematician, that different mathematician can reconstruct a Newtonian solution. It will be one of a whole family of possible reconstructions of the same thing because it will be that it will have the same succession of shapes, but it 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 won't it won't have the extra things which come in because of this redundancy, which really goes back to the way Newton formulated dynamics in the first place, which is fine if you're talking about something moving relative to the surface of the Earth because the Earth provides a frame of reference and you you know. Uh, what it means to say, I'm going to start at the top of the world uh, of, the, of the Empire State Building in New York, um, and I'm going to do it uh, at a certain time because the time can be defined by the rotation of the Earth relative to the stars, sidereal time. But if, if you're talking about this in, in empty space and with a clock which is not realized by actual material things, you're, in, you're, you're just bringing in a whole lot of, well, they're not really there. I mean, this inertial frame of reference is really a swindle. It's, it's bogus and it is actually confusing students who should really be taught, really, that's not the way dynamics was discovered. Yeah. Dynamics, the law of free fall was discovered by Galileo in his uh, studio in Padua near Venice. He was at the University of, of Padua, which was the university that, that was associated with Venice. And how did he find the law of free fall? He rolled balls down a smooth, a gently sloping smooth plane, and he measured how long it took them to travel a certain distance. Uh, and I think there were various ways, but one way which would certainly have been adequate would be to measure it by water clock, how much water flows out of a tank of water as the ball rolls a certain distance. And that way he found a very beautiful law, which he thought was very exciting. It, it was the 
odd numbers law. He said, if in the first unit of time, the ball rolls one unit of distance, in the next, it will roll three, in the next five, in the next seven, and so on. Now that is absolutely concrete. You can imagine Galileo there in Padua doing those experiments and the water coming out of the tank. That is concrete. That's the way students should be taught yes, about dynamics. It's nothing like what high school physics is like. And yeah, uh, yeah, they don't even get to know much. They, they, they study in a very different way. But uh, so uh, just to kind of one more thing about it. So that friction-like term, would, would that dictate a slightly different path in shape dynamics then? Or how to think of that then? No, no, it's, it's, just, it, it's just a, a the very characteristic way of saying how the shapes evolve in reality okay uh, and, and that's really how reality changes certainly if the universe is a self-contained dynamical system it is actually it is what David does with that paper and and I think we also did it in a slightly different way but in essence it's the same thing we actually say this is what the universe really is doing. We are just absolutely pinpointing exactly what the universe is doing. Of course, this is the classical universe described by classical yeah. dynamics. Not We're not talking here about quantum mechanics at all. That's, that's a whole new thing we have to contend with as well. And then uh, with this uh, way of looking at things, so when we look at, say, the cosmological redshift, when we see the redshift of the galaxies, which are attributed to the expansion of the universe, would it be correct to say that then we, we interpret them as the change, the, the shapes changing, or how do you interpret the cosmological redshift? Uh, ah, well, first of all, the observation is in terms of shapes. So basically, the what the observation of a redshift is, is the following. You have in a laboratory on the Earth, where, where, where it was done, you have atoms which emit radiation, and they, they, that radiation is going through a laboratory, or, or it might even be at the telescope, up in the telescope, and, and uh, there are, there's a wave there, and it has a wavelength, and it's literally there in, in Mount Wilson or Mount Palomar. There it is. Well, now it's in these fabulous observatories in Hawaii, Mount Keck, and then in Peru, in the Atacama Desert, and so forth. So there is the, so first of all, you have a source. You can imagine, you should think of it this way. There's a source there with atoms that are generating waves of a certain wavelength in that, in the observatory, you can have it. And then there's also light coming from distant galaxies, and that too has a wavelength. It's come from the same atoms, and you actually see them going next to each other. And the one that's come from the uh, galaxy, it may have left the galaxy an awful long time ago, but the radiation you're looking at is here is there in, in the observatory next to the one that's been generated by the atoms in the observatory. And they have a different wavelength. And it's all now here. And that's all you can say that is part of the shape of the universe at that instant at which the observation is being made. And if you'd made uh, uh, the, the observation would come out, the ratio of the wavelengths would come out differently at different times. If 
if there were telescopes back much closer to that galaxy that had emitted the things in the time, the ratio of the wavelengths would have been different if that had been made, uh, you know, two billion years ago, if it could have been made two billion years ago. And maybe it was, maybe there were planets with, with astronomers doing those things. Uh, but it's all the observations, the facts are all shapes now, in the now. And that's, and it's in that sense that, that we say the shape of the universe is changing. It's not, it's not so much really expanding as, as its shape is changing. All right, thank you for clarifying that. Um, maybe Bruce, I know you wanted to ask some questions related to thermodynamics. Yes. Yeah, maybe I'll let you do that. Actually, let me ask what about you? You just said you, you stated that very clearly that it's not so much that the universe is expanding as its shape is changing. That like is mind blowing for me. I've never heard that before mm -hmm. I started becoming introduced to your work through Sadia. But what does that mean? Like, is, is the universe literally not expanding? Can you help me kind of understand the difference between the shape changing and ex versus I can imagine expanding very easily is what I'm trying to say. Whereas I can't quite get into my head what it would mean to not be expanding, but its shape is changing. Well, that's I should say that this this business is 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 still I would say it's still very mysterious. I mean, okay. there, is, there is one sense in which you can say that the universe is expanding. Um, and it, 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 well, it, it does show up in those, in, in, in how the shapes change. It's, let, let me remind you of the, I'll, I don't know whether this will help, but there's a, do you know what you know what a geodesic is, uh, Bruce? I've heard the term, but not really. Yeah. Well, so if you imagine walking in a hilly landscape uh, and you want to get from A to B, I think you can intuitively grasp the idea that there's a shortest distance between the two points. Oh yes, yes. Okay, that's a that's a geodesic. Okay. Now, um, if you and and how would you? Uh, and if if there is a if there's a law which determines geodesics, which there is on the surface of the Earth, uh, the the geodesic is determined if you go to anywhere on that surface, and then you look in a certain direction, then that defines a geodesic from then on. You don't have to specify anything more than just the initial point and the initial direction. And in a in 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 two dimensions, the initial point requires two numbers and the initial direction requires only one because you only have to say it's 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 one it's it's an angle between zero and 360. Sure. Uh, now what is very very mysterious I think about the expansion of the universe when you look at it in shape space although the universe is only at any instant has a shape and that shape is changing when you want to describe it, you ask, can I describe it? Can I describe the change of those shapes as if the universe was following a geodesic as it's changing its shape? The answer is no, you need one more number. And that number is really what the, it, it's really the, what the cosmologists think of as the rate of expansion of the universe. I see. Okay, and so that I'm not so, and in some senses, it, it, it's perfectly all right for the. I did say that earlier when I was talking about how the 
students are introduced to cosmology, the, the facts in cosmology do give real sense really to saying that the universe now is twice as large as it was at some earlier epoch. That's, that's a meaningful statement, but it's in both cases, it's extracted from the way the shape of the universe has changed between the two things. The information is in the two shapes at the beginning and the end of that period. In other words, you're saying that in, in that sense of looking at things, one size is almost treated as a little bit more physical or absolute and everything else has increased relative to that. Is that how? I, I didn't quite I didn't quite catch the start of your question, Sadia. Could you say so, it again? So in the standard way of doing cosmology, one would think as if one of the size, like you're saying, you know, you're comparing the size of the universe to some size that you've already taken for granted as in some sense absolute, whereas in shape dynamics, all that matters are the ratios. So that question becomes kind of meaningless because... Well, it, 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 I would say it's put in a different perspective. And from my point of view, it highlights a real, uh, what I, I increasingly think is really the great mystery in cosmology and, and perhaps in physics that um, you, and this goes back to what I was talking about, a geodesic law. So the, if, if you really, if you really want to, so uh, the great ideal of a theoretical physicist is to find a law that is more predictive. It's the most, you want to, you want the simplest, most predictive law that you can have. And if we're talking about uh, a law in shape space that governs how shapes change, you would want it to be a geodesic law where a point and a direction determines the law. And that is just that is just not the way the universe works. You need one more number. So it's basically you could so what the I can tell you what the universe is really doing in, in terms of uh, my geodesic story. So uh, I got you, you've got this clear picture of going along a on a, on a hilly landscape between two points along a geodesic. And what the universe is, is doing as its shape is changing, it's not going along that geodesic, but there's constantly something which is tugging it away from the geodesic. It doesn't exactly follow the geodesic. It gets tugged away from it all the time. So it's turning and turning. And it's, it's always being driven to a particular point where where this uh, to particular points where the um, where our complexity or the Newton shape potential that thing is 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 higher it it's dragged toward this point so it looks in shape space it does look like the effect of friction uh, and that's what David Sloan's uh, talk and, and paper is about and and it that's that's the way to think about it and. This, I think, is very, very mysterious because when Newton introduced absolute space and time, he introduced position. That's, that was never a real thing because of Galilean invariance. So uh, the famous uh, fact that you can't, uh, uniform motion can't be detected uh, within a system. I mean, we don't feel the earth moving. That, so that, although that's, appears in Newton's picture of absolute space, it's, it's not, it doesn't have any physical effect, but uh, orientation does, rotation is possible, so that, that's there. Um, 
and energy absolute time has an effect because you can have different energies so you can get rid of those and they disappear from einstein's theory in 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 a sensible model of that, and they disappear in, in a Machian universe. So you get rid of those absolutes, and they completely disappear if, if you have a system which has energy and angular momentum zero. And that's what you expect from the Machian point of view. But the one thing, what also Newton introduced was a notion of absolute scale, as if there was an abs as if there was a ruler outside the universe. Right. And that's what seems it, that's one way of interpreting what the universe is doing. I prefer to think of it as, as this thing that is tugging you away from a geodesic. But that, that's, that's, that's the objective way of saying what the universe is doing. There is something which is tugging its curve in shape space away from the instantaneous geodesic that it could be following. Uh, and that's, you can say that's the effect of of absolute scale that Newton brought in. And I think, what on earth is going on there? Why is that there? I would say that is the, for me, at the level of classical physics, and it may be intimately related to what's going on in, in quantum theory, that is the great mystery. And I think this is the value, this is the, what shape dynamics has done, is it has pinpointed this one fact i think it is just the great mystery interesting could that have, could that have something to do with dark energy by any chance or <laughs> i was about to ask that that's it's almost like saying oh this is something that we just don't know about that's where we just you know it's <laughs> uh i don't think uh, I certainly don't think it's anything, I would be very, I, I don't think it's anything to do with dark matter. So dark matter makes up about a quarter of the mass in the universe. Um, and I, I share, I mean, I'm not an expert in these things, but I think the evidence from astronomy cosmology is that there really is some dark matter out there that they just haven't yet managed to pin down. Um, but um, Dark energy, I would say, I, I don't want to, I think, I think maybe one, if, if shape dynamics is, does, if shape dynamics is the right way to go, I think it may say something about dark energy and also the very early universe when, when modern cosmology invokes something called inflation. I think shape dynamics has the potential to say something about that. And I've, I've written about that, uh, not so much about dark energy, but about inflation in, in my book, The Janus Point, which came out, well, nearly a year ago now. All right. Um, let me ask a couple of my other questions here. I, I was watching an interview that you did. I, I can't remember which one. And you were talking about how at the point of the Big Bang is the point of the, the least, the universe was its most boring. It was the, the most similar. And then going out both directions from there, only one of which would be able to see, you would see increasing in numbers of complexity from that uh, Big Bang point. Did I explain that correctly? Is that, that what yeah, I... Yeah, that's, that's more or less right. I can't remember. Uh, the, the, there are two options that I discuss actually in my book. And in, in some senses, the, the title of the book, The Janus Point, uh, 
applies to um, one of them, which I now think is the less interesting, but it's still, it is still very interesting because it, it, it looks to me as if it could say that there is actually no real, ultimately there won't be any mystery about why, why time seems to go in one direction. So, but in that model, the universe is at its, is at its most uniform at a central point on, so to speak, the timeline of the whole universe, and in either direction away from that central point, which I call the Janus point, the universe gets more clustered, more structured, and that is basically the, the dominant thing which is determining the direction of time. And that matches exactly what, what the universe does seem to have done since the Big Bang. It, it, start, it clearly, very soon after Big Bang, at least, it was very uniform. And it's got more and more clustered and structured ever since. Um, but there is another possibility in Newtonian theory that uh, there's not two sides of the Janus point, but so to speak, that the universe starts from zero size. Now, that such solutions exist in Newtonian theory has been known for about 130 years. Um, in fact, uh, so it there are solutions in Newtonian theory where the, where the particles are sort of doing their thing and then somehow or other they seem to conspire or they're sort of set up in a very fine-tuned way where actually they come together and they all collide instantaneously at their common center of mass. And that's called a total collision and that such solutions exist within Newton's theory was, as I say, discovered about 130 years ago. There was a very fine paper by a Frenchman called Jean Chazy, which spelled out all the details in 1918, 11 years before the expansion of the universe was discovered. Now, if you reverse the direction of time, which you can do because the Newtonian equations don't distinguish the direction of time, then that type of solution becomes a total explosion. It is a Newtonian Big Bang. And what is very interesting about those solutions is that the shape is very special. It, it's what's called a central configuration. It's a very interesting shape. Um, and, uh, and in fact, there's just one of them where the shape is more uniform than any other possible shape can be, as measured by this quantity we call complexity, which is simultaneously the Newton gravitational potential made scale invariant. And in my book, The Janus Point, I call that alpha. And in that case, you would have a model of a universe which starts not exactly uniform, because it can't be perfectly uniform according to the, the formula, but it can be as it's nothing in accordance with the formula, no distribution of the points can be more uniform than that. And, and when you actually look at what they look like, they're incredibly uniform. They, they, they're, they're, if you have, they've been calculated for up to a few thousand points and they're actually all concentrated in a perfect sphere uh, with very uniform density. And then the, uh, there's just an abrupt edge to the sphere, but it's it's the separations between the particles are not exactly equal. There's just ever so slight variations within the separations. So I think that might be a Newtonian model for what the Big Bang was like. And that it, I think it's just possible that inflation, which is quite a successful theory, but they have quite difficulty in explaining why it should start. And there are some issues, I think, with how it ends. And, uh, it, it might replace it. So I think, I mean, then 
if we if we could really show that something like that is also what is really happening in general relativity at the Big Bang, about which there's a lot of uncertainty, then shape dynamics would really have triumphed. But that that's that's sort of uh, for tomorrow. <laughs> Uh, I was also wondering if you could, uh, since we're talking about uh, that, like how the arrow of time, um, the asymmetry uh, kind of emerges out of that then. So we are looking at a very kind of uniform uh, type of uh, a configuration. Um, how would we look at the asymmetry um, that we associate with time, the arrow of time? Well, the, the just to, uh, briefly about the history. So ever since the laws of thermodynamics were discovered and the notion of entropy was, was discovered, uh, physicists have all believed that there's what's called an, an arrow of time, and the they think the most important one is the entropic arrow of time, and that says that uh, the uh, if it's applied to the whole universe, which virtually everybody does do, that says that the universe must have started off rather ordered and to be uh, the disorder, entropy is a measure of disorder in the normal interpretation, and it, it's increasing. And then um, Richard Feynman was one of the first people, in fact, he may have been the first person who met, said it really clearly, there must, you can't explain this, the universe must have started with a low entropy, but there's nothing in the laws of, of known laws of nature which would explain that that would be the case. Um, so that's that's that got called the past hypothesis by the philosopher of science David Albert, and it's been it's been a great mystery. All the, that it was a great mystery became clear in in with the work of Boltzmann in the eighteen nineties in a famous debate he had with somebody called Ernst Zermelo, um, and uh, so that's a, that that's a great mystery. But what we what we showed in in and in fact, actually, we, we were just exploiting things that have been known for 200 years in Newtonian theory. In Newtonian theory, uh, all you require is the energy to be non-zero. And in a Machin theory, you would want it to be exactly zero. And then you will always have these Janus type solutions where at one point on just one unique point on the on the world line of the universe, in the conventional Newtonian sense, the size of the universe is is minimal. But in the way we think about it, the uniform is more uniform than in either direction from that point. And then uh, the universe gets more clustered in both directions away from that point. We intelligent beings must be on one side or the other of the Janus point they will see laws which seemed not to respect to not to have a direction of time that the time could flow in either direction but everything around them is going in one direction the universe is getting more clustered so the the main significance of that paper of ours from 19 2015 is to show that there may not be any mystery at all you don't have to add anything onto the existing laws which was what um Feynman said, uh, uh, and uh, it, it just comes straight out of Newton's law. And if it comes out of the oldest dynamical law in the history of dynamics, it may well come out of everything else in dynamics. Now, we haven't yet shown that, but I think there's a distinct possibility that the case. So that's that's the significance of, of there. Now, the interesting thing is the same. You, you, you can have these very special solutions, which I think because in general relativity, 
characteristically the size of the universe does go to zero or it all comes to a point in the normal way they describe it. Um, I think that Newtonian model where the, which starts with the total explosion might be a good one. And in which case it starts, the universe starts not exactly uniform, but as uniform as it possibly can be with just, it's born with a few wrinkles and then they just get bigger and bigger as time goes on. And maybe, uh, we the arrow of time is it could be you know completely explained so let me ask you a question on that uh i mean Actually, can there... i ask a question quickly on that one yeah would the people on the other side of the janus point would they be for all intents and purposes in a different universe yes because you couldn't communicate and they would have the sense of time going forward in exactly the same as as the ones on this side Right, but okay. I, I mean, as I say, I'm increasingly getting more attracted to this model where there isn't a Janus point, but the same effect really comes uh, for anybody in the universe, but with the added bonus that if, if these ideas are right, then we explain why the universe started in such an incredibly uniform way. Okay, go ahead, Sadia, and then I'll uh, ask you this question. So I was thinking about the arrow, like uh, what would be the reason to think that the arrow is pointing away and not towards the Janus point? Is that to do with uh, what we see when we look at the cosmic microwave background? Radiation? Oh, well, that's that's a question of uh, bringing in the other arrows of time. So uh, and you could think about this in terms of what you call gradients. So the you can say you, you can say this. If you, if you say that increasing clustering is like going up a hill, then you've got a, a gradient going uphill, okay? So that's one arrow of time, but there are other arrows of time, like our, our memories, uh, we, we me remember the past, we accumulate more memories. So you could put a gradient there of the number of memories we have, uh, and there's the there's the collapse of the wave function and there's the increase of entropy and, and and things like that so the question is what would justify us in saying that the um that the the gradient defined by the clustering the increase in the clustering is is the same as all the other arrows of time the one to do with us forming memories and when you can talk about entropy properly uh, that that should go in the same direction. Well, once in this model of the universe we have, we, we pointed this out uh, uh, in a, a later paper than the one that we published in 2015. No, actually, I get it wrong. The one in physical review letters was in 2014. 2015, we pointed out that in such a universe, if subsystems form, they will have negative energy and as they form, they start to behave in the normal way with, uh, as in thermodynamics, uh, and you would have something like an entropic arrow within these subsystems, and that entropic arrow within the subsystems would point in the same direction as the overall clustering in the universe at large. And I don't think anybody really doubts that the way we accumulate arrows also agrees with the direction in which entropy increases. Or, uh, so I think that's the reason why you would say that's that's the sensible way to define the direction of time. By itself, you're right, Sadia, you could say just the clustering by itself, you could say the arrow is pointing to or away from the Janus point or 
to or away from the beginning of time. Um, but once you add in the other ones, if you've got a theory for the other ones, and we certainly have a, at least the out, a reasonably good outline of a theory of the entropic arrow, um, I think we, you know, that settles it. Um, so in that same interview, you mentioned that as things move away from the Janus point or whatever we're calling that, complexity increases. And you even went so far to say that this seems like a sort of teleology. Well, now we're getting, you know, when people reach my age, and I'm, I'm well into my 80s, uh, people say now they get senile and get sort of carried away with crazy <laughs> ideas. Um, uh, I, I have to say, I begin to wonder, uh, and um, I have been greatly influenced, like my friend Lee Smolin, uh, by Leibniz. I introduced Lee to, to Leibniz. Now, Leibniz is a, is a very fascinating thinker. The great uh, logician Gödel, with his famous Gödel's theorem, um, was a great admirer of Leibniz. So Leibniz talks about perfection of, of laws and perfection of the universe. Well, I already mentioned that the ideal of a theoretical physicist is to is to is to find a theory which is 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 perfect and more predictive than any other theory. So Leibniz was sort of advocating things like that. And he, if you read Leibniz, and he's I do recommend it, he's very, he's very thought-provoking. A, a basic point that Leibniz makes really is that if there were no variety in the world, you couldn't say anything. I mean, you couldn't begin, you, you, a completely uniform universe has no meaning. It's just a blank. There's, there's literally nothing there. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so Leibniz has this idea of perfection, which is to make complete or to progressively make more complete, more perfect. And so that suggests that a universe which starts off with very little variety would get more interesting, it would get more perfect if the variety increases. And in fact, he argued very late in his life in his famous monadology, um, very much along the lines which I did earlier about structure could go on right down infinitely deep forever. You know, you could keep on looking with microscopes. And in the monadology, he has a very famous passage where he talks about, um, he was very influenced by the, uh, the Dutchman Leeuwenhoek's uh, microscopic observations with these incredible microbes that he discovered um, with his microscope and had described. And Leibniz was hugely impressed by this, and he argued that the uh, uh, every living tissue has uh, more living tissue within it. And he talks about every pond has fishes in it, and every fishes within fishes you could find ponds with with fishes within those ponds <laughs> all the way down. I mean, like the rhyme about fleas upon their backs to bite them, and they have lesser fleas, and so on ad infinitum. Um, and that idea of Leibniz was killed when quantum mechanics was discovered, because quantum mechanics really puts a lower limit at the present stage, at the present stage of the universe. So what's rather interesting about the universe, I find, is it does seem to have started very uniform with very little variety, and certainly the variety has been increasing very impressively up to the present epoch. 
but there seems to be that idea of Leibniz's ponds within ponds and fishes within fishes and fish ponds within fish ponds all the way down. That's not right, but I don't think it's entirely impossible that in that the universe could go on, that so to speak, there would be increasing levels of ponds within ponds. Uh, this is at the stage where some professional physicists who happen to by chance to listen to this will say, ah, yes, there's Julian, he's really getting senile <laughs> or he's just naive or, you know, he's a hopeless optimist. Uh, I mean, Leibniz was made fun of by Voltaire in Candide as, as, as Pangloss. So, um, so that, that you could dismiss me as being Panglossian, but... Um, well, let me ask you one thing on this. Um, so if there is a unity to the universe, that type of geometric unity we were talking about, wouldn't that mean that uh, identity, like that would give a very precise meaning to identity? Because each view would be unique, which means that we may not really have pawn within pawn, but maybe other stuff within, kind of like the infinity we were talking about, but just the infinity in diversity and not as... Uh, the, the sort of thing that uh, cosmologists sometimes talk about that where there may be repeating parts of the universe where we're doing exactly what we're doing right here, but somewhere else. But then yeah, if well, there... they, yes, these are all metaverse ideas. I have to say I'm, I'm skeptical about the metaverse because, yeah. well, first of all, it re- I, as my understanding is it requires an infinite universe and and it's all within one space time and it all assumes this external scale i'm i'm skeptical about it yeah. uh and and it it came out of these ideas came out of eternal inflation it came out of the success of inflation so cosmologists who developed inflation said well if it could happen once it can go on happening again and then before you know that they've got these things but then they get into terrible probability uh, difficulties with trying to explain make any predictions about the multiverse uh, lee smolin has written very effectively about this and, and so have other people um so i'm I put more faith in there being just one universe. Um, And then it is very Leibnizian that you could look, I mean, Leibniz says that monads, and he he identifies us with monads, he says we are just views of the universe from a particular point of view. Um, And I think think that's, that's quite an idea. What I'm now suggesting is conceivably those views in some senses could be infinitely rich. Perhaps perhaps in the distant future, there are centers of consciousness. I mean, we know we, they know, we know so little about consciousness and we understand it. <laughs> Our understanding of consciousness is, is pretty limited. Um, you know, maybe there are richer things in the future. Uh, who, can, who can say? Um, so- let me just a moment ago, you mentioned that um, quantum mechanics, at least at this stage of the universe, puts a limit on a lower bound limit on sizes. Are you suggesting that as complexity increases, that that could change at some future point in time? I think it's I think it's possible. It's it's I mean, there's, there's no doubt in my mind 
the amount of variety in the universe can just go on growing and growing and growing. Um, and, um, and in some senses, it can, it can be measured. I mean, it, in the simple model we have with point particles, we have complexity, which, which measures how much it is. Now, there is an interesting possibility that my collaborator, Tim Koslowski came up with. So basically, um, our Newtonian models have, uh, as we developed it, just have a fixed number of particles. I mentioned that before, the number of particles is fixed. And mm -hmm. then, it, then, then any shape that the particles come in, uh, any distribution which defines the shape, that has a given complexity. Now, but that complexity depends, changes. Uh, you can have a larger, com the complexity depends upon the number of particles and the way they are arranged relative to each other. So you could imagine a universe in which, first of all, the complexity literally is time, that, that, that what we call time is just the universe becoming more complex and literally is a pure number defined by the value of the complexity. And then that could increase also by more particles coming into existence. You would have genuine creation of particles as well as them being able to move into different positions relative to each other. And in that way, the complexity could go on growing forever. And there would be, you know, more, there would be creation forever. Um, I don't know, I mean, this is, as I say, uh, I'm sure there were, if, if, if some professional theorists get to listen to this, they might be shaking their heads and say, shoot that man. Um, but um, it's not impossible. It's not but impossible. to be honest with you, Julian, I think if anybody in their own time isn't really kind of letting their fancy kind of go wild here and there, then I don't know. They're not being creative. I think, I think <laughs> well, we should, as long as, you know, your papers are to the point. So... So actually related to that. So first of all, would that mean in essence that the Planck, that the Planck length can change over time? Well, the, the, the way I think, well, sort of all the Planck length changes uh, compared with uh, in, in standard cosmology, the Planck length changes relative to the size of the universe. So the size, the normal size of the universe that, that, is, that cosmologists talk about is the Hubble radius. And, uh, very early, very soon after the Big Bang, the Planck length was was not much different from the the Hubble radius. Now it's a tiny fraction of it. I don't just guessing. Is it one part in ten to the sixty or something? It's a tiny fraction of the of sure. the Hubble radius now. So uh, to say that the the Planck constant is not really a constant because. Uh, it, it's it's a constant relative to the things that are used to determine it. And basically that's the cesium atom. But instead of the cesium atom, you, you could think about cosmological scale. So um, it's, uh, there's, there's nothing inconsistent in, in, in what I'm saying. And in fact, okay. I would say that the, inverse of the of our complexity you could call that a a dimensionless plank length and and that will change it, it will be different in different uh in different for different shapes of the universe and that's no different from the present situation when you say 
what's the ratio of the Planck length to the Hubble length? That is changing. That's getting smaller all the time in, in standard cosmology. So there's, there's nothing particularly untoward in what I'm saying there. Okay. Now, going back to teleology, though, I, I realize that's kind of a, a dirty word to a lot of people in, in science. But in evolution, it's not. Like, I can easily talk about a heart having a purpose is to pump blood because of its evolutionary setting, invoking a sort of teleology in evolution, at least in a certain way, is considered acceptable, as long as it's consistent with, like, neo-Darwinian evolution. What would be the equivalent for physics, though? Like, we've got this complexity increasing over time. Where does that come from? Where does the complexity come from? Is there something equivalent to evolution that allows us to invoke teleology without violating anything? Or is this just a mystery at this point? Yeah. Well, first of all, I, I think quite a lot of biologists would be quite cautious in saying that evolution is teleological. I mean, there is this thing that uh, I think the human brain now is 10% smaller than it in for the Neanderthals. And that's just because we've got much more efficient at getting uh, food. So we don't have to have such big brains to know where all the food sources are or things like that. So, I mean, um, evolution doesn't necessarily always go in the same direction, but that, that that's a minor issue compared it, with this. Yeah, it's it's. Well, I'm not suggesting that evolution itself is teleological, but within evolution, you can invoke certain kinds of teleology by the existence of evolution. Evolution equals. Well, I, I think the. Yeah. I think the. In the sense that you say that organisms will evolve to suit the niche in which they find themselves. There. Yes. They're, they're, yeah, that is the best explanation. Like functionalism, a sort of. Yeah. So. But um, I mean, now we're getting, I mean, at, at the moment, I'm having very interesting discussions with, um, with three people. One is, uh, one is uh, somebody who's, who was in finance and has now gone back to um, study because he's decided in, in midlife that he wants to really think about the universe again. And then I'm talking uh, as well to a couple of uh, physics students they're both in their fourth year <laughs> one is in in Iran and the, and the other is in India and we're, we're looking at Leibniz and I must say he's very interesting he, he makes all sorts of suggestions and in Leibniz's time I mean metaphysics was not a dirty word one one uh, one looked for deeper reasons for why things are the way they are and it's only comparatively recently in, in, I mean, I don't know when in the, since the scientific revolution that came in was basically with Newton, when scientists started to say science cannot answer why questions, it can only answer how questions. So if you have a if you have a law, it can then tell you what the consequences of that law are, but it can't tell you why that law is there, why the law is there. But Leibniz is constantly arguing about that law and he, those what possible laws there could be and what the universe could be like. And very often the criteria he comes up for are the sort of ones, and I've already hinted that, that the theoretical physicists love. 
which is the search for the theory of everything, the, the big toe, the great, you know, the theory of everything. That's a very Leibnizian metaphysical um, principle. Uh, it's, it, if a theoretical physicist is listening to this now, he'd say, ah, yeah, but it's justified because first Maxwell unified um, uh, electricity and magnetism, then Einstein unified inertia and gravity, uh, and then more recently particle physicists got a long way with unifying the forces. That's fine, but the, what's driving them on to get it even better is still nevertheless that Leibnizian ideal for, for the perfect theory. So in a way, Leibniz would say perfection is, is a metaphysical principle. Um, so, uh, but uh, let I, me ask you, uh, Julian, about this. So, in that sense, aren't we kind of talking more about sort of like a meta law, which is taking us a little bit beyond relationalism? Then, uh, well, we we may, but Leibniz is is. I think Leibniz would. I mean, I said early on. I some. I'm sure some years ago. Well, it's about forty years ago. I read that. Leibniz reserved, he'd, he wrote very little in German, but, he, but apparently he, what I read was that he's, he expressed his deepest thoughts in German. And in one of his German writings, he says that variety is reality. That is what reality is. And that very notion, if, he, if that's what he said, and I keep on trying to, I mean to try and search for that. And I, every time I meet a Leibnizian, expert uh, and I say is that what he said and they said yes he did say that and then I said can you send me the reference please but I never get it um, <laughs> but it makes perfect sense from I mean everything I've read of Leibniz that, that makes perfect sense that that variety is reality and then perfection will mean perfection the etymology of perfection is to make complete a, a perth is is thorough through through to go through something perfectly and and effect is is from fatere to make so it's to make something perfect to 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 and so the idea that the ideal law of the universe would be to increase variety forever is is not unreasonable and it does come out of Leibniz's way of thinking. And, and certainly I'm, I'm finding it very stimulating uh, discussing it with these people. And uh, the three of them really are very interesting. Um, uh, and I mean, at least uh, the, the, um, the one from Iran is, is very knowledgeable about philosophy and is, is very sharp, comes up with very interesting comments. Um, so, um, I'm I'm getting a little less worried about coming up with <laughs> a little bit of metaphysics, but but making clear what the idea is, and 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 one has got to have some stimulus to look for a law. And, and my goodness me, the universe is is damnably fascinating when you think about consciousness and and, and yeah. all these issues. Maybe we do have to think a little bit out out of the box. I agree with you, because to be honest with you, when I look at the world around me, I, I feel like this sounds like a pretty reasonable thing to say. Um, I mean, I think what happens is a lot of times physicists from within the view that they've held what's worked for physics, well, when we're studying very simplistic systems, somehow they tend to kind of um, 
generalize that to the whole of reality, but it seems like at least when we study biology complex system, it does seem to me that that is best explained in some form of functionalism. And there has been an increase in complex complexity. The world seems to have gotten more interesting, but. Um, you mentioned reading Leibniz. Do you have a recommendation like as a starting point for learning some of his ideas that you're referring to here? Well, have- the, the book that I've, I've got two books. One is just called uh, Leibniz Philosophical Writings, and it's published by, it's called Every Man's University Library of Leibniz's Things. I bought it back in, nine, edited by somebody called Parkinson, and uh, this was published in 1973. The, I mean, I mean, the book is the book is incredibly rich. It's only actually all of the ones that the ones that you read that you see cited and, and uh, a lot. It all comes in quite a slim volume. It's it's it, it's in just over two hundred and twenty pages, and uh, you can dip into them. Uh, Leibniz is not always easy to read because he started off. Uh, very much with scholastic medieval philosophy, which he never entirely shook off. So it's quite difficult to to get into what he's really driving at. So it does help to have a bit of an introduction. But I mean, he talks about simple substances and you think that's just like a pat of butter. Far from it. It it means... uh, something that's got all sorts of relationships within it, which are holding up, knitting it together, to use my expression, it's something which is knit together by its, that its attributes sort of all hold it together. But if you, I don't know whether I've, I've never actually, I mean, Bertrand Russell wrote a book about Leibniz philosophy. I, I read it many years ago. Uh, I mean, I started reading Leibniz, it's now back in 1977, so it's about 45 years ago. Uh, and it made a huge impression on me without sort of an <laughs> a clarification of exactly what he meant. But um, uh, there are things, but I, I would say just get that. Then there's a bigger collection edited by somebody called Lemke, L-L-E-M-K-E-R. Uh, and I mean, the extra, I mean, there's a there's a huge project going on in Hanover to to publish everything of his. They, 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 a few years ago, they reached volume fifty, each volume about eight hundred pages. That's sort of with notes and letters that were sent to Leibniz. And they're only half. They were only halfway through the project. I mean, it's colossal, uh, unbelievable what he generated. Um, and of Thank course, you. he was a very great mathematician. He was joint discoverer of the calculus with, with Newton. He proposed the use of binary numbers, uh, created the first calculating machine. Uh, you know, he, he's, he's a very, very remarkable person. Yeah, it sounds like he's had a lot of, of uh, interesting contributions. Okay, thank you. I will look up some of those books. And now I'm very curious. Yeah, Parkinson. Make a note of the name Parkinson, like like the unfortunate uh, neurological uh, disease. Um, uh, see if you can find uh, it's uh, the book I've got is called Leibniz's Philosophical Writings. I dare say it's still in print, and if not, you could get it in a library. No doubt. <laughs> How much? Eight hundred. Oh, that's the 
mass pro okay there is yeah. a there are youth versions you can get all right good that's probably that's that's probably the the hardback or something yeah <laughs> yes all right I, i'm quite intrigued that my first book which came out as a hardback as absolute or relative motion if you try and buy that uh, on Amazon, it's around nine hundred dollars. <laughs> well, I must say, I highly recommend that book. Like that, that is that's a beautiful book to read. Yeah, I, it, in a way, that's the one that gave me more satisfaction than any other. Particularly, <laughs> what I really loved was was discovering what Kepler had really done. It, it's a phenomenal achievement that Kepler had, and that's actually, by the way, which gives me so confidence in saying that. It's geometry that holds the world together because um, Kepler really was the first person who in his mind's eye could travel in, in space and imagine that he could go anywhere. He, he, I mean, he was, he was always sort of saying, what will, the what will the solar system look like if I were on Mars when from the Earth, Mars is in such a direction relative to the fixed stars, then I'm going to imagine myself, I'm going to then know if I go, if I were on Mars, I would know what, where I would see the Earth from against the background of the stars that way. And then he then could use that to check various conjectures. It's just phenomenal. He, 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 he did that. And he also wrote one of the very first science fiction novels, novels, which is an imagined journey to the moon. <laughs> well, we're quite a bit over time, so we probably ought to wrap think, up. And it's about it's about time for me to start making my supper. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, But anyway, good to talk to you both. Um, yeah, good to talk to you, Julian. Thank you so much for your time. This was such a treat. Uh, it was. It was awesome. Well, it was a pleasure. Okay. All right. There you are. <laughs> bye then. All right. Bye-bye, Julie. Bye-bye. Bye. The Theory of Anything podcast could use your help. We have a small but loyal audience, and we'd like to get the word out about the podcast to others so others can enjoy it as well. To the best of our knowledge, we're the only podcast that covers all four strands of David Deutsch's philosophy as well as other interesting subjects. If you're enjoying this podcast please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. This can usually be done right inside your podcast player, or you can Google the Theory of Anything podcast Apple or something like that. Some players have their own rating system, and giving us a five-star rating on any rating system would be helpful. If you enjoy a particular episode, please consider tweeting about us or linking to us on Facebook or other social media to help get the word out. If you are interested in financially supporting the podcast, we have two ways to do that. The first is via our podcast host site, Anchor. Just go to anchor.fm slash four dash strands, F-O-U-R dash S-T-R-A-N-D-S. There's a support button available that allows you to do reoccurring donations. If you want to make a one-time donation, go to our blog, which is fourstrands.org. There is a donation button there that uses PayPal. Thank you.